podcast uh you're joining us on a quick hitter edition uh we're going to be discussing the 2023 nba finals game one and two and previewing game three tonight we're trying to get this one out before uh, the third game here if you haven't been keeping up with the nba finals or you you have been on and off we are tied uh one game apiece between the denver nuggets and the miami heat it is shaping up to be a great NBA Finals matchup. I'm very curious to see what this will look like. Uh, but Derek and I this week are going to kind of break down game one and two and kind of give our thoughts on it, what we see happening tonight for game three. So without further ado, we're going to get into this quick hitter edition. So Derek, as we draw up this quick hitter here, uh, just your initial thoughts on this series as a whole before we kind of get specific. What have you enjoyed? What have happened? What's happened that you, you know, not really expected? Or, you know, just some surprises pleasant surprises what uh what are your initial thoughts here on the uh on the 2023 nba finals well cam you know kind of unlike the rest of the way a lot of the playoffs shook out i think this one's kind of gone the way you and i have talked um and kind of the way we thought we knew that uh more than likely miami was going to get at least one or two games in this series and that's kind of proven true um was a little bit surprised that miami got one early at at denver um in the first two games denver's a tough place to play um, and saw an interesting stat that, that Jimmy Butler and Miami were able to do something that Kevin Durant, Devin Booker, LeBron James, and Anthony Davis could not do, which was go get a victory at altitude out there in the Mile High City. Um, but I, I do think you and I have kind of had good conversations, a fairly accurate conversations when it comes to this series so far in the sense that watching game one and game two, Denver looks like the better team. That should hold serve. Uh and with these two teams, I think certainly both offensively and defensively, a whole lot more things have to go right for Miami to win than for Denver. Um, and I think that's kind of been the one thing, the one staggering thing that kind of stands out is when Miami shoots the ball well, you know, <laughs> they can beat anybody anywhere um, and are certainly formidable. Uh, but I do think that Denver's consistency has shown out. Um, I don't like the way Denver finished game two by any means. Um, their last eight, nine minutes there in the fourth quarter, um, I think left a lot to be desired. And listening to Coach Malone speak, obviously I think he picked up on the same thing, that there was a lot left on the floor um, that they weren't doing, that they needed to be doing. But so far, I think it's kind of shaken out the way you and I thought it would competitive series I think game three is going to be a whole lot of fun we'll get into that later uh, but so far I mean the stars have been the stars uh, Gabe Vincent not necessarily coming out of nowhere but it's kind of been uh, the hero for Miami so far when you think about them with Bam and Jimmy Butler he's kind of been the guy that's come in and taken over a kind of a more dominant assertive role here so far and not sure many people would have seen that yeah, I agree. Uh, the unsung heroes of the Miami Heat have really been the the true heroes for them. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. It, it seems like there's a lot of things that have to go right for Miami. Uh, in Game 2, that's what happened. Game 2 was the first time I think I've seen Denver throw together multiple poor possessions. The great thing about Denver is they really don't 
have bad possessions. It's like they kind of just miss shots. Jokic usually makes the right decision. They usually find a good open shot, and it may just not fall. Um, this is the first time I think I've really seen them be disrupted. Uh, looking, looking back at both of those games, Denver looked like they pretty much had control for most of those games. Yep. It looked like what we expected. For Miami to come in there and win, that's what I didn't expect, for Miami to come into Denver and, and steal one. This has been really exciting because now I feel really like I'm not sure what to expect out of the rest of this series. I really expected, and I think the rest of the basketball world expected, 2-0 lead for Denver. It's going to be, you know, muddy in Miami. It's going to be, you know, a tough one for Denver to maybe get one. Or, you know, uh, we expected maybe to go back to Denver with a tied series. But for this to be one-to-one going into Miami, now I really don't know what to expect. Um, We talked about when we previewed the finals, the way we thought Miami could win was the way Phoenix stole some games when some of their role players hit a lot of outside shots, and that's definitely what happened in Game 2. Duncan Robinson got hot, like you said, Gabe Vincent. Um, But it was, you know, a really interesting um, turn of events there to end Game 2, which is going to make Game uh, 3 even more exciting. So as we kind of look back at these first two games, uh, I kind of like to look at Game 1. Denver wins at home. Game 1 definitely expected... Uh, triple double from Jokic, uh, a great game on you know on both sides there. But if you can think back to Game One, um, kind of the the things we expected out of Denver, um, and it looked like that Miami couldn't quite uh, deal with the size that that Denver had. Um, Aaron Gordon early on in the game getting some post ups. Um, Jokic having his way with Adebayo and definitely having his way with Cody Zeller. Um, that's been kind of a really bad mismatch for Miami. Um, I saw that Zeller's minutes, um, they're like minus, I think they're minus 19 maybe when he's on the floor um, in his minutes, and that's just not great for, for Cody Zeller there. And that definitely has to do with the matchup there with Jokic. But that first game, Denver really had control and kind of maintained control. Uh, Miami could not hit the shots, which is the way they're going to win the game. Uh, but I left game one thinking that Miami was really not going to have an answer for the size there. Is that kind of what you were thinking too after game one? Yeah, and it's just been Denver's ability to go to multiple guys in different spots throughout the game. You know, obviously it starts and ends with Jokic, but. You know, Jamal Murray's ability to not just get hot, but to go nuts for periods of time. Right. Uh, you know, he can put the team offensively on his shoulders if he needs to throughout the course of a game. Michael Porter Jr., we've seen him have nights where he gets hot and he becomes a flamethrower. Uh, and then they've got, you know, kind of their role players. You know, um, KCP comes in in spots. He's able to knock down shots. Aaron Gordon, I think, kind of gets lost in the offense a little bit and people forget about him. Uh, but he and Jokic have this connection offensively where he's able he's able to read what Jokic is looking at. I think even before the play is happening, they kind of tend to be kind of on this almost like extra, you know, telepathy type thing where they have a feel for each other. And he's able to find cuts and find runs to the rim and get himself open as the defense is shifting and, and adjusting to Jokic, you know, Gordon's able to get a lot of easy looks that way out of their offense. And uh, the size has been a factor. They showed that on ESPN a couple of times, um, just the discrepancy between the players. 
Um, somehow Kevin Love has shrunk two inches since he was in high school. Uh, I don't under he was six ten coming out of high school. Now he's six eight. All of a sudden, <laughs> Aaron Gordon was six ten at Arizona. Now he's six eight. It's weird how guys get in the NBA and they shrink. Um, you yeah. have to start checking the college <laughs> rosters. I think they're all wearing tennis shoes and three pairs of socks. But uh, <clears throat> now I think that uh, Denver's offense does give teams problems, and especially a team like Miami that plays with a smaller lineup, uh, you have to account for it, no doubt. In in a series like this, you know it can be can be problematic in certain instances. Yeah, I think that was the adjustment going into game two as we're looking at both of these games. Kevin Love hadn't played the past three or four games, and they put him in um, – I mean, they start him in game two, which is, you know, again, he, he hadn't played. Uh, that was the real adjustment. You know, looking back at game one, Aaron Gordon made his first handful of shots. I think they made like four or five straight shots that were all assisted – or almost all assisted by Jokic. That's what you were talking about. They had a mismatch. They had smaller guys out there, which is what Miami typically does. They play that smaller lineup. And Aaron Gordon was feasting. That's the mismatch that they found. Um, they, you know, Obviously, they have mismatch in Jokic, but they, I don't think Miami anticipated uh, Denver going to Aaron Gordon early on. Uh, that really changed in Game 2. Um, game 2, they start Kevin Love, and now Aaron Gordon can't really post up um, with Love. So that kind of slowed them down early in the game. Uh, Miami jumped out to that huge lead uh, to start, and then game two, they come back. There's kind of this talk of, and J.J. Reddick called it like lazy analysis, that Miami turned Jokic into a score. Now, Jokic had 41 points, and in all three games that he's had over 40 in the playoffs, the Denver Nuggets have won. Now, I... I agree with JJ and some of the other people who have said, I definitely think that that's a narrative that's just not true. I don't think Miami's just, oh, we'll just let Jokic score. But he did only have um, four assists, which is not typical for him. Uh, do you see anything with that? Like with, with Joker passing less and all three of the games he scored over 40, they're losing. Is there something to that? Man, I saw the post-game interview with Spolstra when he got asked that question. And absolutely loved his response. It was beautiful because he he, you know, he told the it was Ramona Shelburne who you know has been around the NBA forever. And to me, we've gotten into a situation with media where it's just incredibly lazy media. Whether it be during the game, which I hate in-game interviews at this point. To me, they do them at nauseum, and it's like, dear God, get off the court and let the game happen. Right, but. If you're going to be in the situation, at least ask a question that has a little bit of context to it, that's got some meat to it, that actually has a little bit of an answer that you can give and, you know, sort of kind of elaborate on. But just to sit in a post-game interview with an NBA head coach and basically say, well, it looks like you picked your poison tonight and you made Jokic a scorer and not so much of a passer. Well... I loved his answer because that's just the untrained eye watching basketball. And to a certain degree with a player like that, you know, MVP caliber, do you have to pick your poison? Yeah, but he's one of the best players in the world for a reason. You're not just going to be able to say, tonight we're going to make you a score and take away your ability to facilitate. Uh, <clears throat> so I did like his answer there. And I think it just kind of, 
as, if anything, just kind of catered to the way Miami defended everybody else, not so much him. Uh, I think the way that Miami ran their defense to everybody else uh, just sort of set up to put him in a position to be a little bit more aggressive offensively and to score more, and he took advantage of it. It just so happened that Miami, or Denver lost, lost the game. Uh, but I don't know that it had anything necessarily to do right away with saying that Jokic was relegated to simply having to go score on offense. I don't know that I would agree with that necessarily. What what, what are your thoughts there, Cam? So I kind of thought the same thing. First of all, I love Spolster's answer. Um, I love when he said he put it as nicely as he could, but he did basically say the untrained eye. It was just, and it's easy to think that. I mean, when you see him score 40 points or more and have less assists and they lose, it looks obvious like, oh, okay, well, you know, Jokic, when Jokic scores, they lose. And I don't think that's – correlation isn't always causation. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, when the whole team is not engaged as much, obviously, or they're not, you know, scoring at a higher clip, obviously it's not going to look as good. Jokic, like he has said too in a lot of his interviews, he kind of takes what the game gives him. You see his sense of urgency raised in games like this. That game when he had 53 against Phoenix and they were losing, and you know Landry Shamit was hitting shots like crazy, and Booker and Durant just couldn't be stopped, and it was kind of like, you know, what are we going to do? You see Jokic really like put his foot on the gas pedal, and I don't. Again, I don't necessarily think that he's, you know. I don't think they're worse when he's scoring. I think he starts right. scoring. <clears throat> I think he starts scoring when um, you know they get behind and he has to. Um, so I definitely don't think that they're a worse off team when he starts putting points on the board. But I do find it interesting that those things do correlate. Um, looking at their game plan, though, Miami definitely didn't stress the double as much, and I definitely thought. It's not necessarily that Joker scores more. It is that they're taking away his ability to pass the ball. Um, Portland did this a couple years ago uh, in the playoffs. Portland uh, beat them in a series early on when they didn't have Jamal Murray, and they may not have had Michael Porter Jr. But that definitely seems to be what you can do to really affect Denver's offense. And the thing is, is it didn't just completely eliminate Denver. They lost by three points, and they had a chance to win it there at the end. So it's... It's funny to me that it's like, oh, well, they found the formula to stop Denver. Well, they, you know, they took the lead late and won by three points. So it, it definitely didn't just completely sever their, you know, offense. Uh, but I agree. I think it's kind of a lazy thing to just say, well, we turn him into a score. Um, but it was interesting to see that whenever he does score 40, they haven't won. Uh, the other thing, I, I thinking back to game two there with having that last opportunity, um, kind of the question that's been thrown around and it was talked about after the game and in, in the days since then with, you know, a few seconds to go and Denver has the ball down three, what call are you making there? Are you calling timeout? Uh, so we had that Jamal Murray play where he takes the fade away over Jimmy Butler. Um, it was kind of, should Mike Malone call a timeout? Should they roll with it? What are you doing there, coach? Are you, are you calling timeout and drawing something up or are you letting the playmakers play? Depend to me, it's it's so situational based. I mean, you've got a guy like Murray that 
you've got trust in that you know can go get a bucket in those situations and rise up and pull from anywhere. Um, I got no issue in letting Denver's offense run. Um, that you know they've made it this far, they've gotten you to this point. Sometimes you dance with the girl that got you there. Um, but at the same time, with the way the NBA timeouts work, I love the advancement to half court. You know, so I don't. It's it is the NBA Finals. Um, to me, if you've got a timeout in those situations, it never hurts to burn one. And they NBA, had two. I believe they had two left. NBA coaches in those situations are so good, and I think that's one thing that gets overlooked. Everything just kind of looks at, oh, well, it's just the best players in the world going out and making plays. Well, one of the best things NBA coaches do are after timeout situations and being able to get their best player the ball in the place that they need the ball in and would have not hated at all to see a timeout called there just simply to have something set um, because, you know, he didn't get necessarily the, the cleanest look and wasn't the most on balance there, kind of falling away on the wing. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you live and, live and die with sometimes your, your best shooter taking the shot at the end of the game, and it just didn't happen to fall. Yeah, you know, I, when it initially happened, I was kind of screaming at the TV, hey, let's call a timeout here. Like I was, you know, hoping to see maybe they draw something up and send it into overtime. Uh, it kind of reminded me of those, like, uh, remember those old Buffalo Wild Wings commercials? <laughs> like the game was so good. I'm like, yeah, let's put this thing in overtime. I can't wait to see this. Uh, but then – I actually heard Grant Hill make the point after the game, and now I kind of agree with it. And to your point as well, you you have the the balls in your best shooter's hands there. Grant Hill made the point, wouldn't Mike Malone just have drawn up a two-man game with Joker and Murray, which is kind of what they had? So I kind of went back and forth, like, well, maybe they got what they wanted that he just didn't get right. as clean. Uh, I definitely would have liked to see a timeout just to see what they would have drawn up. Just me being, you know, kind of a nerd for those sort of things. Like, I yeah. want to know, hey, what's your after timeout? What's your set here? It wasn't the cleanest, but I have to, you know, as I thought about it, I agree with what Grant Hill said. I kind of have almost fallen into that, like, yeah, that's probably something similar to what they would have drawn up anyway. Um, however, you know, I I don't know. Those, those are so hard because it is so situational. Uh, definitely would have liked to have seen it, just to see what they came up with, but um, it just didn't fall that way. It was a very interesting finish to the game, though, um, having Miami make that run to come back. Uh, Duncan Robinson gets hot. He had 10 points in two minutes for Miami there and really wasn't a factor in the first half. Um, I find it very interesting, the entire Miami situation there. They've got so many undrafted guys. Um, They don't really have the quote-unquote superstar, which I think Jimmy Butler at this point is pretty much – put himself in that category as being a superstar. He's been to two yep. finals in three years, and yep. they almost made a run last year, really. Um, they lost a really close series to Boston, who ended up going to the finals. Um, as just a pure basketball fan, I'm curious your thoughts, too. It's really enjoyable to see a team like Miami play a team basketball game like this. Um, I Sometimes the complaint with the NBA is seeing so much of the high pick and roll and so much of the, the usage rate players Watching Miami play this game and watch the ball move and watch a different guy can be the guy every night, just as a basketball fan to me, is super fun. Uh, I don't know if you have any comments on that or not, but I just enjoy that style of basketball 100%. Yeah, and the media and everybody else is kind of, you know, really hyping up that whole Miami culture idea, that whole Miami culture concept. And I think it's real. You know, I think a lot of times you can talk about 
throwing that word culture around because it's kind of a just a cliche thing for coaches and programs to throw around because it's easy to say culture, it's hard to define it. And right. I think with Miami, I think you actually kind of see it being defined in some of these guys because, you know, we talk about Jimmy Butler being, you know, a superstar, but his story and background is not a superstar background. You know, so, you know, going down their roster, guys like Gabe Vincent, Jimmy Butler, you know, Kyle Lowry, who had his stint in Toronto and had success, is now being relegated to coming off the bench in Miami. So, you know, there's a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. He's got something to prove. Max Struess, Duncan Robinson, they go undrafted. Uh, Kevin Love, definitely on the back end of his career, uh, certainly – you know, should be playing with a little bit of a chip there because there's some, you know, he was waived by the Cavs and was sort of relegated to an odd role in Cleveland. Even without LeBron and Kyrie there, he kind of took a backseat to some of those young guys. So he's playing with stuff to prove. Uh, and then, you know, Caleb Martin, who goes undrafted. Uh, they've just got a whole list of guys that you can go down and look at and just understand why – why they play such team basketball, why they play so hard, and how they've gotten themselves into the NBA Finals. Yeah, they're, they're so much fun, especially seeing, yeah, like Jimmy's story and, and the whole group story. To have groups that are under, you know, all these guys that are undrafted, guys that are on the tail end of their career, it really, um, honestly what it reminds me of, and it's my favorite book and probably my favorite movie, and you and I have these discussions a lot, they have the, the money ball kind of vibe as a basketball team. Yeah. Um, because I know that they are pretty heavy into the, I mean, I know all NBA teams are so, you know, heavy into their analytics and their analytics departments, but Miami, I think was one of those teams that was kind of early in on that, um, before some of the the teams were, there was a handful of teams that were, um, really deep diving into those things before it kind of became, you know, the norm. Right. But they definitely have that feel. They don't have a guy on a huge contract. They don't have, they're not bringing in the big free agents really every year. Uh, they get some of their guys for nothing. I mean, they got Jimmy Butler from Philadelphia for Josh Richardson. Um, they pick up Kevin Love when he gets basically cut by Cleveland. Right. And they have an array of these guys that are, you know, they play Juco and then they play, you know, or Division Three, and then they get a stint at Division One, and then they don't go, you know, they don't get drafted. So they definitely have kind of that vibe of, you know, this money ball or like the uh, – you know, they say in Moneyball, the island of misfit toys, like from, yeah. you know what I'm talking about. That's that's kind of what Miami is, and they continue to be this team that that's up at the top, and they won the Eastern Conference last year in the regular season, and they're an eight seed that's now in the finals. Yeah. Um, they're just, at a point, the most fun team. I mean, um, the most fun team to root for, I think. I mean, I'm definitely, uh, I, I love this Denver Nuggets team and what Nikola Jokic can do, but that team and honestly the organization I think at this point has to be looked at as the best organization in basketball for you to get that much out of your players continually be competing you're not spending the money other teams are um there I just think that they're, they're the most entertaining as an entire organization for that reason yeah it's pretty incredible to me that Pat Riley continues to be you know almost like like Jerry West kind of had the stint of being the front office guy for a long period of time but it was always there was always him but then there was always Pat Riley kind of right behind him and I don't think Riley gets enough respect right now for what he's done with this roster like you said constructing it with guys who were not 
high major Division One players. You know, Duncan Robinson spends a stint at the Division Three level, then gets a, you know a look at, at Michigan, and turns into the player he is here in the NBA now. Uh, but the fact he's constructed this roster the way he has, really just around Jimmy Butler, you know, drafting Bam out of bio, uh, and taking him away from being a lot more than just a back-to-the-basket player like he was at Kentucky, he runs the offense. Like, there's been a couple of times it's rebounded by someone not named Bam, and they throw the outlet to him to initiate the offense. Um, and he's playing their five spots. So there's a little bit of um, similarity in both offenses in oh, the sense that, that sure. you basically have five interchangeable parts on both ends of the floor. Uh, you know, the offense kind of begins and ends with Denver with Jokic and kind of begins and ends with Butler with Miami. But you've got a bunch of interchangeable pieces here, and on any given night you've got multiple guys that can get hot. And I think that that's what we saw in game two with Miami was a couple of guys got loose. Um, you know, and if that's the way that, that they can play for the, you know, three more times, you know, them getting hot like that is not out of the, not out of the question. And they can certainly make a real run at the title. For sure. Yeah. I mean, Bam is not, you know, in the Jokic category and he may not quite be in the Sabonis category, but he's right. Whoa. He's, he's, similar in the way they use him. And it was interesting because Miami um, Miami does this in these games, and they've done it throughout the playoffs, and they definitely have done it in the finals here, where they use Bam differently throughout the game. He is not very efficient in terms of a back-to-the-basket player like you're talking about. He, that's just not really who he no. is. Um, but they use him like that early in the games. If, if you watch, first quarter and even the second quarter, they use him back-to-the-basket. He posts up. He screens and rolls down low. And then as the game goes on, second half, and he did it uh, in, in game two especially, then they start pulling him out. And then he maybe picks and pops or he initiates from the top, and then they've got all those shooters coming off screens. They're curling towards the basket. There's a lot more space under there. And especially in this series when you're pulling Jokic away, um, and Jokic is having to chase guys downhill and playing that pick and roll, that's probably his biggest weakness. And he does a good job. I mean, he gets called a bad defender, but I don't think he's a bad defender. He's just not quite as good as some of these other guys right. are. But Miami uses him, and they and they do it strategically. They've got Bam early in the game down there, and they just pull him away as the game goes on. They're, he's initiating it from the top, just like Jokic is. Um, and it's really, really fun to watch them do that. And so that's just you know part of the brilliance of Eric Spolstra and the way they utilize that. But Adebayo, there's always this talk about, oh, he should be defensive player of the year and this and that, and he is that kind of defender, but he is up there in the playmaker category, and, and he's creeping his way up into that kind of second tier with where Sabonis is. Um, with Joker obviously being that top tier of the, you know, the, the five-man playing the, the uh, you know, kind of the playmaker position, yeah. but I, I, it seems like teams are starting to creep towards that model. It obviously worked out for Sacramento. Draymond Green, they did that a little bit with um, the Warriors, but Miami Heat really kind of steal those Warrior vibes. They don't have a Steph Curry, right. but they have that kind of smaller four or five tweener like Bam Adebayo running that similar Draymond thing. So um, it's really interesting to see how they do that. I'm curious to see how Denver uh, will respond. And I guess we're, what we're going to get into here, uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to preview tonight's Game 3.
All right, Cam, we are back. Let's get into this. Let's do a little bit of a deep dive here into game three of the NBA Finals coming tonight at 8.30. Uh, look at this. We're going to take a little bit of a different twist here, and I like your idea. Let's kind of analyze both teams from a okay. coaching perspective. You know, if if you were Eric Spolstra or if you were on staff, what are some things you would do? If you were on Mike Malone's staff, what are some things that you would be looking to do? What are some some changes you would make? What are some adjustments that you would throw in offensively, defensively, personnel? I don't know. Uh, but if you were in charge or helping lead these teams, what are some things you would be looking at? Sure. So, um, you know, maybe when this gets out there, one of those guys, one of those front offices hears this and, you know, gives us a ring and see if we, you know, could help out. That would be best case scenario for this. Uh, <laughs> it's summertime. I'm free. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we're both we're both available to consult either of these either of these organizations. Um, I kind of want to start with Miami. Okay. So let's look at Miami here. If if I'm you know if I'm talking to Eric Spolster, if I'm you know in charge for a day, uh, I, I'm looking at this game plan tonight, and I'm really focusing on Jimmy Butler, um, or rather, I'm focusing on making sure Jimmy Butler is my playmaker. These first two games, the talk has kind of been that Jimmy Butler has not been what he has been in these other series. Right. He's been great. He's played great defense on Jamal Murray. But in the first game, he was held to his lowest scoring uh, that he had been in this whole playoffs. Aaron Gordon has played great defense on him. If I'm Miami, first and foremost, and early in the game, I'm looking to get Jimmy involved. Um, and that, to me, seems like a little more pick and roll up with Jimmy as the initiator. Uh, I'm trying to get Aaron Gordon switched off of him. Aaron Gordon has been a tremendous defender in this entire playoff run. He had to guard LeBron. He guarded Kevin Durant. Yeah. He was guarding um, Anthony Edwards. You know, he and I think Carl Towns at times. Like he was guarding multiple, like the the main initiator of the offense for all of these teams. And so he's done a great job on Jimmy, and it's and it's evident there. Jimmy can't quite probe like he normally does, kind of that back down and, and look to, to skip it yeah. because he's dealing with a bigger body. I'm trying to get a switch. Um, and if they're going to switch, you know, I'm trying to see, hey, can I get one of those, like, inverted pick and rolls? And Miami's really good about that, using, like, a smaller guard to, to screen for a bigger guy. I'm trying to see, hey, can I get – Gabe Vincent, Kyle Lowry set some screens for Jimmy and get Jamal Murray guarding Jimmy Butler so that he can back down. He can use his body, get into that mid-range spots, drive and kick or penetrate and get to the bucket. So yeah. if I'm Miami, my initial game plan, I know there's a lot of other things to go into it, but I'm thinking the really big thing Miami needs to do is making sure Jimmy can get involved. Because if Denver has to make the adjustment to stop Jimmy Butler, then it's going to open up a lot for shooters. You know, one of the things that – Miami struggle with the first two games was getting shooters open until late yeah. in game two. Um, but now I think you've got to get Jimmy involved early so that now Denver has to make that adjustment and then you can really get the ball to your shooter. So offensively, I'm looking to get the ball to Jimmy. I'm trying to get Aaron Gordon switched off of him, making him the initiator. Defensively, um, kind of sticking with the not doubling Jokic uh, plan that they had last game. And I'm really trying to make Michael Porter Jr. a playmaker. He's really hurt them in these playoffs. He hasn't shot the ball really well from the outside at all um, in these first two games. Uh, there's this picture that's going around social media. I don't know if you've seen it. That's pretty laughable of him driving into the lane for a pull-up jump shot. And there's two, I think it's Jamal and Joker, wide open under the yeah. basket. Um, hmm. Is it Jamal or is it Aaron Gordon? I can't remember, but it's two. It's, I think it's, it's Jamal. Murray for sure. I think it's Murray and Jokic down there. And they are just wide open. 
and he takes a contested jumper over, you know, two defenders. Um, if Michael Porter Jr. is a guy initiating a lot of things, I think that's really good for Miami. So offensively, I'm trying to get Jimmy the Rock here. And defensively, I'm not doubling Jokic as much, and I'm trying to put MPJ in those playmaking uh, uh, positions. Uh, if you're if you're in charge of Miami tonight, what are you doing? I'm going to start in the same place that you did, talking about Jimmy Butler. Um, right now, I don't think through game one and game two, either of us would have been thinking our conversation would be that Jimmy Butler is the third leading scorer on Miami right now. Right. Um, he's at 17.5 points. Which still very serviceable. That's nothing to, you know, to shake your hat at or anything or be upset about. But I don't think either of us would have thought he was going to be their third leading scorer going into the first two games. Uh, to kind of go a little bit off what you said, talking about utilizing uh, ball screens with Bam, I put utilize pin downs and some dribble handoffs to get him the ball. Uh, typically speaking, night in night out, he's a great mid range scorer. And so I think finding ways to get him the ball in that pinch post, high post area, especially in the middle of the court, where when he comes off a catch, he can facilitate or score. Um, I do like what you said about putting him in situations where Denver needs to switch, uh, because he, I think that's part of his issue right now. He's currently 5 of 19 in the first two games on mid-range jump shots. Wow. And so that's definitely not like the Jimmy Butler we're accustomed to seeing. That's kind of his bread and butter area of the court. Uh, he's actually shooting the ball better from three than he is from the mid-range right now, which is different. Uh, but maybe it does come through utilizing some some pin-down screens, some, some ball screens, some DHOs, where you're putting Denver in situations where they have to make up their mind, do they switch or do they stay? And if you can get them to switch – put a smaller defender on him, it certainly is a chance for him to maybe go eat a little bit and get himself back on the right track, um, see the ball go in a couple of times. You know, the basket gets bigger as that, as that goes, and sometimes that can open up the floodgates. Um, but I do think it, it kind of starts with getting Jimmy Butler going early and often for Miami tonight. Uh, I think you look at creating defensive mismatches through, by being able to space the court. A little bit. If you're Miami, you've got guys like Struess, you've got guys like like Duncan, Vincent, who's going for 20 a, a night right now in the finals. Uh, you can space the floor with guys like Kevin Love, who's plus minus is plus 18 through the first wow. two games. He's only scoring six points a game, but he's a plus 18. Um, so I think it shows what he's worth when he's on the court on both ends. You have to account for him offensively, but you know, he's also kind of held his own defensively in, in certain situations also. Uh, Miami's 30 of 74 from three, and we know how the first game looked. The second game was very much the opposite. Um, so, again, I think continuing to run your offense, playing through space, finding ways to get Jimmy Butler the ball in the middle of the floor so he can facilitate and kind of operate and drive the offense a little bit. I think it goes well for Miami if you're able to do those, those types of things and just seeing Jimmy Butler put the ball in the hole. I mean, five out of 19 is not what you plan to see if you're Miami. If that gets anywhere close to 50%, you know, maybe we're looking at a 2-0 series for Miami. For sure. For sure. I think that's kind of been the the struggle, and the narrative would definitely be different. If Miami doesn't, you know, come back and win that game, I think the narrative is definitely that Jimmy had two poor games. Yeah. And not necessarily that it was poor, but you know media-wise that's going to be the narrative. Well, and even, and to they, his, even to his standard, I mean, yes. when you are 
when you are the dude on your team and you are the third leading scorer, and if, you, if you're down 2-0, uh, that attention is going to turn to you pretty quickly. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's, again, credit to Miami. Miami doesn't really care who the guy is that scores. Um, they, they'll just find the guy who's hot that night. But I think if Jimmy Butler is initiating and scoring early, it's going to really put Denver into panic mode. Uh, jumping to the other locker room, if we look at Denver, uh, what are your offensive adjustments, defensive adjustments? If, if you're Denver, what's your game plan heading into game three in Miami? That's going to be an interesting place for – I'm interested to see how Denver comes out to play in game three. As we know, um, Miami fans, they show up. It's going to be the whiteout. And yeah. they can be rowdy for an NBA final series, as, as we've seen before. Um, so if I'm Denver, I still feel pretty good about where I set. You know, it took a pretty awful fourth quarter performance for Miami to come back and beat you by three. You had a chance to tie the game late at the end of regulation. So if I'm Denver, I don't feel like I need to change up a whole lot. Uh, I've got continue to play your offense. I think you take what the defense gives you. If they're going to solo cover Jokic, I think you let them solo cover Jokic, and he goes for 40 again. Um, you know, if you don't have the defensive lapses, you probably end up winning game two, and you're looking really, really well going into Miami for game three. Uh, utilize cutters and spacing. Um, I think that's one of the interesting back and forth in this series is how Denver – their offense facilitates through Jokic, and they utilize cutters a whole lot to create openings. Miami very much tries to play through space and screening. Uh, but if you're Denver, you've got to clean up the defensive letdowns. I think it starts there. There's not a whole lot of offensive adjustment to make. But defensively, you've got to clean things up. Um, I saw an interview with Coach Malone. He showed the team 17 defensive clips where their defense broke down and in those 17 clips, they gave up 40 points. Wow. Uh, wow. And, you know, it's one of the few times that you'll see a coach really rip his team publicly about their effort, about their communication, and about sticking to a game plan. And I think, you know, in those 17 possessions, he said he had to address all of those things in that we weren't communicating late, we weren't sticking to a game plan late, and our energy simply was not what it needs to be for Game 2 of the NBA Finals. So if you're, if you're them – I would start there. It's got to be on the defensive end, um, looking to keep Miami out of the paint, out of the middle of the floor. And I would look at trapping certain situations. You know, if, if they look to utilize Jimmy Butler in some different ways, if you're Denver, is your adjustment going to be to trap him, to try and, make, to try and force the ball out of his hands? Um, and do you want to continue to try and make other guys have to be the leading scorer? Right, yeah, absolutely. I definitely think defensively it's going to be a huge um... – a huge adjustment for Denver. So I'm going to go ahead and continue with the defensive side of the ball there to go with you. And I, I think you have to kind of look back to what they did in game one. I definitely don't want to see Jimmy Butler be a guy that's really initiating everything. Um, so kind of my defensive game plan here is bite the bullet with Bam. Um, and I know we talked about earlier, you don't just make a guy a scorer, but it's a little different between Jokic and, and Adebayo. Um, so there is an interesting stat that I saw this season. I was watching a game where the Warriors were playing the Knicks. And it said that Draymond Green, his career scoring average against any team or coach is always significantly higher against a Tom Thibodeau coach team. And that is because Tom Thibodeau will let him <laughs> shoot. Um, and 
Bam is probably a little bit better of a, a shooter than than Draymond. But in the first game, Bam led them in scoring. He had a really big first half. I think he had like 18 points in the first half. And I'm not saying that you let someone shoot, but with all the efficient shooters they have, with Jimmy Butler being a guy, you definitely don't want to initiate. And it is proven that Miami struggles when he's not initiating the offense because when Denver has kind of really taken him out of the mix, Miami struggled. Yeah. If Bam is the guy taking more of the shots, if he's the guy, like we said earlier, he posts up and then he kind of pulls out and he's the initiator. To me, you've really got to force Bam out of bio to be someone making plays off the dribble and trying to take more shots. He is going to get a little more points. When I say bite the bullet, he's definitely going to score more. But there's a there's a difference between turning Jokic into a scorer and turning um, out of bio into a scorer. He's not as efficient of a scorer. Um, and I'm not saying you let someone get to the basket or score 41 points. That's definitely not what Miami is trying to do with, with Nicola. But with Bam, I think if it's in his hands for a longer period of the shot clock or he is the guy with it late in the shot clock, um, I think it's much better for Denver. And that's proved to be the case. When he's right. the one that's stuck with it, they've had they've struggled. Um, now, their shooters got hot late in the game. Uh, in game two, like we talked about, there's a lot of defensive lapses. But to me, defensively, uh, I'm kind of doing the Thibodeau-Draymond theory here. Is I'm letting Bam be the guy that I want him to take a lot more shots. Yeah. Adebayo doesn't seem like he cares that much if he scores. He definitely has kind of the Draymond feel. Um, I, I'm wanting to see Adebayo be a guy that's taking a lot more shots, make his mid-range a little more deep than he wants to be, um, let him take that free throw line extended. But if Adebayo's taking more of the shots and it's not in Jimmy's hands as much, um, I think that's way better for Denver's defensive game plan. Yep. I actually have a few offensive things I'd like to see Denver do um, okay. if I'm in charge here. <laughs> um, I want to see a little more two-man game with Jamal and Joker. Um, I think, like we said, with if Jimmy's involved with Miami, if Jamal Murray is seeing shots go in early in the game, it's probably a wrap. Right. Um, he has been one of the best playoff performers. Um, I know he's been hurt for a couple of seasons, but when Jamal is on a roll, it's a knockout punch. I mean, there's a handful of shooters in the league that are like that. You know, when Steph and Clay get that way, you can pretty much just wrap it up. Um, Jamal is getting into that category of a guy that if he has a couple go down, he's not missing for the rest of the night. Right. I think if you play a little more of that two-man game, try and shake Jimmy off of Jamal Murray because Jimmy Butler has done to Jamal Murray what Aaron Gordon was doing to Jimmy. Um, Jamal has really had trouble shaking Jimmy Butler. So I think if you get Jamal some space, we're running handoffs and, and pick and rolls and getting Jamal into some space, I think that they're really going to be tough to deal with. The other thing I'd like to see them do offensively is they put Kevin Love in the starting lineup to neutralize Aaron Gordon's post-ups. Yeah. But if they're going to do that, I think you have to try and exploit the mismatch that can Kevin Love stay out on the perimeter and be a defender. Um, I want to see them force Kevin Love to guard on the perimeter. Whether that means you switch him onto a guard, maybe you're using Aaron Gordon as a screener for Jamal Murray. So now Kevin's trying to stay in front of Jamal. But to me, if we're using, if they're going to use his size to neutralize Aaron Gordon, I'm pulling him out and see if he can guard downhill. Right. So to me, I'm trying to get Jamal more engaged on offense. And if you're going to put Kevin Love out there, who's been really good, I'm going to make Kevin Love have to stay in front of. You know, guys like KCP and Jamal Murray coming downhill or see if he can deal with Joker uh, on the block. So, to me, I think Jamal needs to get engaged way more, and I want to see if Kevin Love can hang with my guys getting downhill. Yeah, I think that's a really good point there. Um, 
Like we said, you know, Kevin Love is plus 18. He's been very serviceable so far in these finals. Only averaging six a game again, but um, has been vital to Miami uh, and what they've been able to do and the success they've had so far in the series. But I do completely agree with your point. If he's going to be out there on the floor, you've got to find a way to create a defensive mismatch with him if you're Denver and get you something that looks like you can take advantage of it. Yeah, for sure, absolutely. Um, after the game plan here, what's your prediction? Who do you see coming out in game uh, in game three? I know we picked Denver to win the series, and I still think Denver wins the series. Miami at home, first game of the finals with that crowd and the way that they finish game two. I'm gonna go. I, I think Miami wins tonight, but I'm not sure they win again. Okay, that's interesting. You did pick Denver in six, so that would be pretty interesting. There. I don't love uh, it, and I'm not comfortable with it. Right. But I do think if Miami is going to get there too, I think this is their opportunity. Uh, if they lose tonight, I'm not sure how they turn around in Game Four and get another one because I feel like if if Denver smells blood in the water, they've been the team to close out the series so far this playoffs. They had a chance to lay down in game four against L.A., and they went in there and absolutely put their foot on the Lakers' throat. Right. And so for me, if if Miami's going to get one and possibly push this to a seven-game series, they have to win tonight. Um, I agree with you, and I, I like that. Well, I agree on that point, rather, but I'm going to zag. Please. Um, I, definitely, I definitely think this would be the opportunity for them to, with, with the energy. Um, I, don't, I don't see Denver losing two in a row. Um, that's that's kind of my thought with this. I think – I can see um, that, too. I, even though I, I do kind of see what you're saying there, and I, I – it is hard to go into Miami and deal with what they've got. But I don't see Denver dropping two in a row. I think Denver has their foot on the gas tonight. So uh, I'm, I'm going to take Denver. I don't think it's going to be maybe necessarily a blowout, but I'm taking Denver in in, uh, in game three um, and making a really interesting game four, home game for Miami. Yeah. Um, I'm really excited to see how that goes. Uh, we'll probably be back uh, next week at some point to discuss the next two games. Absolutely. Um, we're going to hint here at probably a, a pretty special guest next week. Um, we'll post on social media something about that later. Um, please follow us um, and let us know your thoughts on upcoming Game 3, uh, your thoughts on Game 3, your thoughts after Game 3, um, and you know, let us know your takes on that or what adjustments you think uh, should be made. Follow yep. us uh, at PicketFence underscore pod on Twitter, the PicketFence podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, for both of us here at the PicketFence podcast, don't, Don't get, get caught, caught watching the paint, paint dry. dry.